0: Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television, join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, did Home Alone ruin Hughes's career, the greatest movie never made, and how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Eugene Ash first entered the filmmaking business as a recording artist, where he landed on soundtracks for movies like Free Willy and De Niro's The Bronx Tale. While reading these scripts and others, he started to see movies and television in a songwriting sense. As a screenwriter, he's got credits for the documentary Home Again and films Homecoming and now Sylvie's Love. In the latest project, the story follows a young woman who meets an inspiring saxophonist in 1950s Harlem. In this interview, the writer-director talks about making movies rooted in humanity rather than trauma, writing screenplays to music, his formula for making indie films, how to change the energy in pre-production and why creatives need tunnel vision to make work at the best of their capabilities.
2: As I, I, the transition really came through doing, uh, music for some film and television projects. I was on, um, a couple of soundtracks, most notably the Free Willy soundtrack. In, in the uh, 90s, um, the Bronx Tale soundtrack that was a Robert De Niro film, and then segued into doing music for um, Tom Fontana and Barry Levinson for, um, I did music for Oz, another television show called uh, De La Ventura, um, and, and another one called Firehouse, um, and just got really infatuated uh, with I was reading a lot of scripts before I was doing music for them, so just felt like a longer form of songwriting uh, for me. You know, I was always sort of a storyteller with my with uh, with my band. We had a, I was in a band called Funky Poets, and often the songs were kind of tell tales of you know of urban life. So it was just a natural transition for me. Took a while to master, certainly. And not sure that I have already, but.
1: How have you seen like that side of business change, like even since the 90s? I know I just rewatched, all the Beverly Hills Couch movies. There's like one song in those three movies. A lot of 80s movies were like that. How have you seen soundtracks and scores and things change over the years?
2: Well, it's, um. There's a couple of things going on. I mean, you know, it's it's really because there's no real physical um, records being sold anymore. You know, everything's sort of downloadable. I think that it's become a place to to market uh, music. Um, in my film, Sylvie's Love, that we sort of take a different approach. You know, the needle drops are all kind of their old old things, and then we did. Um, the score, much like an old score, we used a 65 piece orchestra and the great Fabrice Lecomte uh, composed all of the score, you know, the score and we, um, and he did it to picture like they did back in the day and with a live orchestra. <laughs> so, so, uh, but a lot of things are done digitally these days. So you just kind of give the guy or a girl or woman a, a um, you know, them your film and then they just kind of come up with with stuff on on the computer
0: so you're the writer and director on this film
1: how did you pitch it knowing how important the music was going to be for the movie what was kind of that initial pitch like for you
2: um you know i mean i think it was a little bit of a of a tough sell just to certain people not the people who wound up uh, working with me on it but it was a tough one to get made because it wasn't dealing with it was um it's a period piece and it wasn't dealing with the civil rights movement and it was kind of jazz based and jazz is not really like the music that's you know as popular as as popular music is today like hip-hop and and other things so it was just sort of like you know who who's the audience for it? it wasn't like i had this baked in uh giant audience for jazz <laughs> that I could be like, oh, everybody loves jazz, <laughs> you know, so that made it a little difficult. Um, it wasn't difficult, however, for Nnamdi uh, Asamoa who plays the lead and who is one of the producers on it, because he's just he, he because he was a former uh, pro football player, he's always up for a challenge. And he immediately was drawn to the fact that he'd have to learn how to play saxophone to be in this movie. And he just is always up for a challenge. That's just his personality. It's that kind of, you know, professional athlete, like you tell them they can't do something and they're just gonna, you know, be like, oh, well, that's ridiculous.
1: <laughs> what What is the, tell me a little more about that. Like, what is the timeline for him to learn an instrument? And then is he learning a handful of songs or like, what does he
2: need to know, you know, day one of filming? So we have, uh six original tunes that he had to play and they are the person playing so he does play in in he plays uh some live stuff in 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 the film but he's also basically you know imagine you have you having to play jimi hendrix and learn how the fingering on all, all of the solos you know you want to use the real music so Basically, what we did was we did pre-records of the stuff from the band with Mark Turner playing a tenor saxophone, and Mark Turner is one of the best living tenor saxophone players in the world. So for Namdi to learn all six of those songs and learn how to do the fingering on all the solos, like he can play all of those, all of those solos, and uh, he probably can't play them anymore. He could play them <laughs> on the day, day one of shooting. Um, but it's uh, so that's the process. I got those songs. We recorded them about a year and a half before we shot the movie, and he got to live with them and work with the coach, and um, and just that was all. It, they had charts for them, and they just worked it out. You know, they wrote charts up for the solos, and he just learned how to play them. And he did nothing but that for, you know, for a year and a half, almost two years.
1: What was your writing process like for the screenplay? Like, how do you come at a script when you know it's going to be very music-heavy, you know, kind of maybe where the songs are going to go? How do you start to outline some of those things to prepare to write the screenplay?
2: Well, it's interesting. I, um, With the needle drops, I, um, you know, the songs that I'm using that are songs from history, Um, I just would, I would actually have an idea of, a, a feeling that i was trying to evoke that came from the song you know so i would listen to the songs while i'm writing the scene is the way that i do it so the opening song is uh, is a tune by uh, nancy wilson called the nearness of you and that's always been there since the beginning of you know from me writing the script and i would just listen listen to it on repeat 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 and uh as i was writing that scene and just kind of playing it in my head. Uh, So that's often what I do. If there's a feeling that I get like melancholy or whatever it is from from a song, um, I'll often play the song. Sometimes it doesn't make it into the the film, but sometimes it's just, uh, you know, like some scenes I listened to Sade (laughs) and sat by the window while it was raining. So I could really just get this kind of, you know, (laughs) feeling of like, sadness or melancholy or emotion from it mm. so that's kind of my process I, I pretty much always even if it's not a music focused uh film i pretty much always listen to music while i'm writing
1: is that also true for like the original idea like where did this initial idea come from why did you want to make this period piece and that type of thing
2: yeah i mean i'm a big fan of of the films from that era like you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's and the Doris Day stuff and also things like the Dick Van Dyke show. I just always felt like, you know, that, that was a period before I was born. And I, but my parents got married in 1959 and I had a brother who was seven years older than me. So a lot of our family pictures, you know, the first kid, they take all the pictures of. So <laughs> most of our family pictures were of my older brother and my, and my parents. And it just looked like such a really cool time. Like I grew up more like in the 70s into the 80s. So we had like big afros and bell bottoms and it just didn't look as like, you know, like that era looked like Mad Men and and it looked really kind of like classy and sexy. And I was seeing that in my old family albums and then the album covers for these, uh, uh, you know, the old Blue Note album covers and pictures of Miles Davis and stuff like that, I was seeing that but I wasn't seeing it depicted in movies. So I was seeing Doris Day and I was seeing Breakfast at Tiffany's, but I wasn't really seeing black folks uh, in those movies, even though we provided the soundtrack and we were very much there, you know? Right. Uh, So I was like, I just thought it would be a, it's kind of started as just like, I thought it'd be really sexy to to show uh, black folks that way. And that's kind of, that was the genesis of it.
1: Right. Did you feel any pressure to to add more civil rights type things into the movie or like how did you kind of pitch it in a way that this is a character based story as opposed to some of the other, you know, films about that type of subject?
2: That's a fantastic question. And I'll tell you it. um, A lot of the no's were surrounding that. And it wasn't until. You know we made this film completely independently and then and, and then uh amazon bought it mm-hmm. so we didn't really have that pressure once we got the money because everyone who put money into it understood what we were trying to do which was basically not make something rooted in trauma but make something that was rooted in our humanity as as mm-hmm. as black people right. and um you know we we kind of felt like of course you know you need to have a film like selma and tell a story of martin the king but there's so much else going on there. And by not showing that there was so much else going on, it's a way of erasing the fact that we were still thriving in the midst of all of that. It's just kind of like what's going on now with, you know, uh, you still have Beyonce and Jay Z, <laughs> even though you've got George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and, and everything that's happening to us, but we're still. We still had a Black president. We still had, you know, so, so if you don't tell those stories, too, it is, for me, a way of erasing us. And then a, a curious thing happened uh, is that, you know, the pandemic happened. And I think people were just sort of, they needed this in a way that, you know, I, I couldn't have anticipated, right. you know. It just uh, wound up being the type of movie that people wanted to watch. I think they were fatigued by the trauma mm. that we were going through. And I'm not just talking about racial trauma, I'm talking about the pandemic and being alone and being at home. And I think, you know, it's like, hey, we have enough trauma in, in our real lives. <laughs> we need like something a little uplifting and, and lighthearted you know? So I think that we just wound up in a place where people just, it was the right thing at the right time. It really made Christmas like it, that was when we were released It made it really special for people were gathering and people were having watch parties separately, but together, you know, so it was just. That's that. But yeah, it was very tough. There were a lot of people that were like, you know, if you're going to do something, um, I, we need more urgency. If it's going to be a, a period piece with black folks it needs to talk about the civil rights movement, it has to have, you know, and I'm like, well, I think uh, black love is urgent. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, so that so that
1: was, I mean, that had to be some of your pitch, right? You had to kind of explain that to a degree, I would imagine.
2: Yeah, I mean, I tried not to focus on it. Um, when I was when I was trying to raise the money for it. But like I said, uh Diasmo, who's who plays Robert in the film, really, uh, he got it immediately. And he really kind of put his company on the line, uh, you know, in, in if we didn't get more money from other people he would have been he would have been stuck with the bill um but you know once we got tessa thompson involved and we got some other um actors involved who had names all of those things started to come together but yeah we made it independently and then sold it so it wasn't i think once we got it in the can people got it it was the hard part was you know well if you can make the we would often get if you can make the film that's on the page, we'd be interested in buying it. We're not going to give you the money to make it. <laughs> right, right. So You go away and make it and then bring it back to us when it's done. And then we'll decide whether we want it, <laughs> that you've uh, made it to our satisfaction, which is basically, you know, how that, how that goes down in the indie, in the indie world. <laughs> Tell me a little more about, about the indie world. I mean, is it.
1: If you get a few, is it just like putting the pieces together? You have the script, you want to be the director, you get an actor, you eventually get an actress. Do you just kind of work through it, you know, milestone to milestone? Is that how you kind of see the whole process going?
2: You know, that's how I see life. (laughs) That's how I see life, man. It's just, there's always going to be something. And, you know, you just have to be kind of, you know, indefatigable and not let those those hurdles get to you you know you gotta you're always going to have something in the way of your of, of progress and so you just keep trying and trying and trying a different way um, you know sometimes you try to you you exhaust the same way and then it's like this isn't gonna work and so the the I guess the, to create a new question here that I, I think it's um yeah you just uh, the thing that made the difference was, was, um, you know, when someone like a Tessa came on because she was, you know, it, it just made, it, it changed the energy surrounding it. And it makes people believe, you know, because Tessa Thompson clearly at that point could have done any, you know, she was doing Thor, she was in Westworld. There was like no reason for her to make this movie unless, you know, so she kind of co-signed and said that it was a good, a good script and that she believed that I could actually pull it off. You know, so that was the the kind of that was the thing. That was kind of the hardest thing is, you know, I only had one I had one indie film before this that I had done. It was a feature, but it wasn't, you know, I made it for about $15. And so I didn't have anything to really show that I could that I could do this other than the fact that I had written the script. So that was what I would use to kind of sell it. It was like, well, I'm sophisticated enough to write the script. What makes you think I can't <laughs> execute it.
1: Yeah. So t- take me back to maybe before some of those first conversations. You only had, you didn't have multiple scripts you were trying to shop around. You had this one and this one goal in mind to get it made. Is that kind of how you were coming on with just this enthusiasm about it as you're the storyteller, writer, director?
2: Um. Yeah and I did, I had other I had other screenplays too that that uh you know that I was interested in in making at the time um you know I wasn't it wasn't just the one but that was the one that really I wanted to make more than anything like it was just it took a long time to get made you know more than 10 years um and so I just uh I just stuck with it kept coming back to it you know, made my other my first film, Homecoming. I I wrote the script before I I made Homecoming, but it was just it 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 wasn't going to happen. You know, I got close with a couple of other scripts um, early in my career. You know, like, really, I I, I had one set up at Miramax back in the day and a couple of things that just didn't, you know, there's a million reasons why films don't get made. you know even if you sell them and you do all of these things there's there's the studios are littered with phones they bought that will never get made so it's just it's you know it's 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 just part of the business these things get made when they want to get made and right. with who's supposed to be in them you know and it's just it's there's a there's an aspect of it there's a part of it that is um completely out of your control. <laughs> so the, the best thing, I think, the best advice is to always, and it's the advice that I, I give myself, is to just focus on the part that you do have control over, which is making the very best script you can make, you know, writing the very best script you can you can write. And when you get the chance to make the movie, making the very best movie you can make. Can't think about anything, fame, money, anything like that. You just have to have tunnel vision about like I'm gonna make this thing the best thing it can be. Because once it's burnt into, you know, we shot in film, so once it's <laughs> burnt into celluloid, that's it. You can't take it back, you know, once you put it out. So that's really it. You gotta just kind of it's hard, hard, hard work. Mm. It ain't pretty. It ain't for the fan of, you know, it's not. It's not, it's not, there's nothing glamorous about making film. Mm. There's, that is a lie. <laughs> it's, it's grueling 16 hour days. It's, <laughs> you know.
1: Most of the, you know, the stories that go viral are like the quick sales and some of that stuff, but most movies it takes 10 years or, or more to get made. What advice do you have for people about the longevity of just sticking with something? Just like, you know, something's going to work out. Maybe not that one, but like you said, you had a couple scripts. If you keep pushing all of them, something's going to work out. What advice might you have around that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, the, 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 um, what is the lot the lottery thing? You know, you got to be in it to win it. <laughs> like you know, if you don't if you don't play the lottery, you're definitely not gonna win. So it's it that's what it really is. Like everyone I know, who has stuck with their art, has made it at some point. And everyone I know who has given up, has never made it. <laughs> you know. And sometimes it takes a long time. One of my favorite stories is that, you know, the guy who wrote the King's Speech. Mm. I mean, what a great movie, what a great title for a movie, what a great idea for a movie and the execution on it's beautiful. And it takes a guy like, you know, 20 years to make it. Mm. You know, like who, what idiot passed on that movie? You know, it's like, it's so obviously a great, strong story. But Everyone I know who's ever gotten a movie, I remember with uh, Argo, with, uh, with Ben Affleck, you know, when he got the Oscar, he was like, a lot of people passed on this thing. A lot of you were in the room sitting in the audience. You know, he just like couldn't let it go because it's tough. And he's Ben Affleck, he already had an Oscar. And, right. You know, it's like, but everybody I know who's tried, no, nobody really gets it on the first time unless you. Unless you're, uh, you know, James Cameron, and you just came off of, you know, <laughs> a movie that made, you know, even, uh, I, I, even, uh, Shaka, I heard Shaka King from Judas and the Black Messiah. Think, you know, he was like, you know, we had a Ryan Coogler who had made, you know, Black Panther, a billion dollar film, and you know, he's like, I had him as executive producer, and we still couldn't get the thing made. Wow, you know, like it took him a minute at his last film was like, eight years ago, newlyweds. Mm. And he took him eight years to make another movie Barry, that's, that's the thing too, you know, the the next one, it took me 10 years to make my second film, this is my second film and took uh, Barry Jenkins the same, like uh, 10 years after around medicine for melancholy. It just, you know, doesn't even matter. It's crazy.
0: How
1: do you think about structuring some of these ideas with the possibility it's gonna be indie? I mean, are you writing them in a way that the budget's more you know, on the lower end? Because they don't really make the medium budget movies anymore. So you almost have to be lower or write a Marvel movie. How do you think about structuring stories around things like that, where you're gonna come
2: on as the director? Yeah, I mean, I don't think about that. I mean, it's just sort of the scale of my ideas uh just um I have some films that I probably won't make now because they were smaller scale. Mm. And they would have to be like I'd have to have Timothy Chalamet as the lead, you know, or like right. Brandon Cooper or you know, cause you can't that's how you make a nomad land. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh you need like like this kind of force of nature, who's the star of it and and you know that's the way that those movies get made i think mm. nowadays um but yeah i don't think too much i i actually i'm at the point now where my my the scale of my ideas is i was holding back on the scale of my <laughs> ideas because i didn't think i'd be able to get you know <laughs> the money to make them so now that that i'm I have my foot in the door the scale of my ideas are are, are larger now you know that's now yeah, now I want to see, you know, people in outer space and. All <laughs> of... <laughs> are you thinking um, are you thinking
1: about television at all? Or are you Are do you like the two hour movie landscape? No, no, I
2: love I love television. I was uh, I was uh, my mother used to put me in front of the TV and leave me there for to 10 hours. So, yes, I love television and I'm working on um, a couple of different television projects right now um that I, you know, can't really talk devote. Right. But um yeah, I've got uh I've got some TV coming mm-hmm. coming at you that I'm super excited about. Yeah, I think it's just I mean the, the line between you know I shot Sylvie's love on film and meant for it to be projected and it was, you know, because of the pandemic we wound up on on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And so and as a television movie, you know. Yeah. Um, and so And it doesn't really you know it's like people uh have giant screens in their house with you know the same kind of you know dolby systems that you find in movie theaters now so a lot of people like to watch stuff at home and i think the line is kind of blurred right between that stuff i mean i I, you know i enjoy something like succession just as much as i do any film you know I, i love it you know so it, it's a different, it's a little bit different, you know, because it's a longer, Yeah, you know, it's kind of like you're you're making an eight hour movie or a 10 hour movie.
1: What What might the difference be? Is it, I mean, I, what I used to think before there was so much TV is just like, well, if the character dies in the end, it's probably going to be a movie. But if he's got a <laughs> lot of stories to tell as a TV show, how do you see the difference now where it is so similar?
2: Yeah, I think it's just, um, you you just, the pacing of it, you know, you you really just have two hours to tell tell a story in a film. And here you can really dig into the nuance and the minutia of it and build the character. You have more time to build the character. And then you have these kind of like little stunts that happen in between, you know, just to kind of like lead you to the next, lead you to the next thing. I also am really, in. I, I like the medium of, of, the kind of limited series too. There's the you know, so there's that as as its own form that's kind of in between a a movie, you know, a film and and a long running TV show, you know. Uh so those kind of like like uh Ava DuVernay's When They See Us is a great example. That was a really I thought a really fantastically shot one. You know, looked beautiful, Bradford Young shot it and you know they're a lot of, there there's a lot of space for those now i think uh in in with streamers you know mm-hmm.
1: i guess if you were if you were starting today or if you were to pass on maybe some good advice you heard i think you've already said a lot of good things listen to music while you write you know come in as maybe the writer come in with something a screenplay but what advice might you have for young writer directors out there starting today
2: just to Not try to, I think the first couple of moves that you make, you know, you're trying to emulate the stuff that you like, but ultimately it should just try to make the most original thing you can do that means the most to you. Because that's what's ultimately going to differentiate you from the pack, you know, and then everybody will be doing, you know, a different version of what you were doing. Um, But it's really, it's the only way to. You know you really have to believe in the type of idea you want to see birthed into the world that doesn't exist already. Like think about that thing. Like what would it be really cool to see that doesn't exist? Not like how can I make another version of a movie that just you know, how can I make another version of the Black Panther or Nomad Land or you know. So I think that that's the thing is to really just kind of keep it as original as possible. And weirder, the better, (laughs) because there's going to be somebody out there that's like, oh, I like that.
0: (laughs) Thank you for tuning into the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.